The job of a prophet in the Old Testament was simple. It was a simple thing. Now, to be sure, it was at the exact same time. It was multifaceted and complex, but nevertheless, the job of an Old Testament prophet was simple. You see, as a prophet, you do what God says, you go where God says, and you say what God says, and you just let the chips fall where they may. See, as a prophet, it made zero difference, zero difference at all whether the people repented or killed you. You were simply called to be faithful, to preach whatever it is that God called you to preach. That was the job of a prophet. And at the end of the day, God gave his prophets three simple tasks, three basic tasks given to a prophet of Yahweh. It's very simple. They were called to prosecute God's people, to persuade God's people, and to predict the future for God's people. That's a prophet. They were called to prosecute God's people for their sin and their refusal to love him. They were called to persuade God's people to repent and avoid the guillotine of his wrath. And they were called to predict the future for God's people. In the most glorious, magnificent, astonishing, vivid, powerful, jarring, soul-awakening language that they could possibly find to awaken their souls to the glory of the future or the horror to come. That was the job of a prophet. That was Isaiah's job when he became a prophet. And you understand that Prosecution, persuasion, and prediction is exactly, it is exactly what Isaiah does in chapter 1 of this book we know as the book of Isaiah. And there's something you need to know about chapter 1 that's very important. What you need to know about Isaiah chapter 1 is that Isaiah does all of his prosecuting, all of his persuading, all of his predicting, get this now, in a courtroom. It's a courtroom scene. You see, using ancient law court language, Isaiah chapter 1 is literally written like a trial. It has all the trappings of a courtroom drama. The witnesses have been called. The evidence is presented. The charges are read. The people of Judah are the accused. They've been caught red-handed with the smoking gun of idolatry in one hand and the bloody knife of immorality on the other Yahweh doesn't have to go past page one in the file. This is an open and shut case. This is going to be an easy one to decide upon. This is easy to do. No smooth-talking attorney is going to be able to bail God's people out of this one. There are no alibis, no pleas of insanity, no bargains can be made, no deals can be struck. No, the people are guilty of spiritual prostitution, and the sword of God's judgment is about to strike. And yet, and yet, although judgment would come to the nation as a whole, there was still time for individuals to repent and come back to Yahweh as the treasure of their souls. And so I guess on top of Isaiah's prosecuting, persuading, and predicting ministry, he also had the job of pleading with his people to come back and be restored to Yahweh. That's Isaiah chapter 1. Chapter 1 of a 
chapter prophetic masterpiece known as the book of Isaiah. And for an undisclosed amount of time, I can't tell you how long that'll be. Only God knows how long that's going to be. That's exactly where we're going to be. And although Isaiah comes to us with many, many theological amenities that makes it more than worth our time to read and study literally for the rest of our lives, chief among those amenities is the riveting picture of the Messiah and his glorious kingdom to come at the end of the age. You understand what Isaiah is doing in your Bibles, the reason why it is in your Bibles, its function in biblical history, get this now, is that Isaiah is a salvation saga of a suffering Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. That's Isaiah. A salvation saga of a suffering Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And Isaiah is really clear, this Savior to come, he would be born from a virgin. He would be God. He would die for sinners. He would raise from the dead and one day build his kingdom on the earth and be worshipped by the nations. All of that is contained in Isaiah. And so no wonder they call Isaiah the fifth gospel. And yet I'll be honest with you this morning. Every once in a while, from God's word, we need to hear a message that can only be described as adult conversation. Sometimes we need something a little more potent than a polite tap on the shoulder. Sometimes we need a spiritual two-by-four across the soul to awaken us to the dangers of drifting from God. Sometimes we need a prophet to back us in the corner, put his finger in our chest, look us in the eye, and ask us all the questions we were really, really hoping he was never going to ask. Not harsh, not hopeless, not ungracious, not discouraging by any means, just invasive, persistent, a steel dental probe jammed into the raw, unmedicated nerve of our deepest desires that define who we are, that is exactly what kind of message Isaiah chapter 1 is. So here we go. Court is in session. Everything is ready. All rise as the honorable Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, presides. Here's where we're going in our opening sermon on Isaiah. This morning, I want you to see from our text three Christological solutions. Three Christological solutions to the deepest dilemmas of life and the soul that afflict the people of God. That's where we're going. I'll say it again. Three Christological solutions to the deepest dilemmas of life and the soul that afflict the people of God. And yet before we see any of those solutions, we need to pause and we need to look at the various dilemmas that cause, that give rise to the need for those solutions. And so let's begin first with, if you're following along, the indictments made by a God, against a godless people. The indictments made against a godless people, verses 1 through 9. Because again, as I said, what adds gravity to chapter 1 is that the whole thing is written exactly like a courtroom trial and litigation. Yahweh has sued, as it were. He has pressed charges against his very own people, the people of Judah. 
And you understand, this is no small claims court we're dealing with here. No, this is the galactic courtroom of Yahweh himself. This is the highest authority on the planet, in the universe. And again, the irony about the whole scene here is that Yahweh is both the judge and the one who filed the charges. He is both the offended party and the jury who makes the verdict. The people are on trial, of course, are the people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is the man appointed by God as the prosecuting attorney who must read the charges, present the evidence, and get this, make a devastating case against his own people. Not a job for the faint of heart, mind you. And yet I want you to notice first in verse 1, Isaiah's credentials as a spokesman, prophet, prosecutor for the God of Israel. Look at verse 1. He says, a vision of Isaiah, son of Amotz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's a loaded statement right there. Full of significance. Because you notice first, don't you, that Isaiah describes what you're about to see as a chazon, a vision. That's not just chapter one. That's the entirety of the book. All 66 chapters of what you are about to encounter is described as a vision from Yahweh given to Isaiah, which means none of it is Isaiah's own opinion. The question, of course, is who or what is the vision about? To whom was the vision given? And Isaiah makes it clear, verse one, the vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning, here it is, Judah and Jerusalem, and there they are the guilty party. The people of Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, Isaiah's own country, Judah, and the city in which he was born and raised, Jerusalem itself. Everybody's on trial for idolatry and for apostasy. And yet notice the crucial detail given at the end of verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, which he saw in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You know what that is? That would be like if Isaiah lived in America and he said, I was a prophet during the presidencies of Carter and Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama and Trump and Biden. In other words, what that does is that places exactly time period-wise when he was a prophet. Roughly from the years 735 B.C. to 680 B.C., 55 years of extremely faithful and yet extremely painful ministry. Isaiah preached during the reign of all these kings, during all of them, which is a pretty tough gig because these were the years when the kingdom of Judah was tottering to its grave. When the giant shadow of Assyria fell over the land. This was the darkest hour in their history since the time of the judges. And that's it. That's all Isaiah gives us to intro the book. There isn't time for the Star Wars long scrolling introductions that explain what's going on. Because court is already in session. And Isaiah begins by calling his first witnesses to the stand. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. And what has he said? Sons I brought up and raised, but they rebelled against me. See what he does there? 
In dramatic fashion, he calls heaven and earth as witnesses to the stand. You see, they have been the silent, impartial eyewitnesses of the decades and even centuries of wickedness by the people of Israel. But you see, the thing about these witnesses, however, is that all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, even before they got in the land, Yahweh warned them that if they screwed it all up and got in bed with idols, that the heavens and earth would be their witnesses against them. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 4 says this. Yahweh says, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you. For you will quickly perish from the land where you are going. If, if you leave me for the brothels of idolatry, so to speak. Which is what they did. And now God made good on his promise. You can't say he didn't warn them. So here are the witnesses on the stand who have witnessed the shocking atrocities of the people, this mounting mound of of evidence against the people of Judah for centuries. And notice verse 2, how God frames the initial indictment. Look what he says. Sons or children I have brought up and raised, but they have rebelled against me. I mean, did you hear it? The, The anger, anguish combination in his voice. Because you notice, you notice that Yahweh frames the charges not in dry, impersonal legalese, but like a father who had his heart broken by children who repaid his love with rebellion. Because you remember, God loved Israel. He loved them. He chose them. He singled them out and selected them. He made covenants with them. But instead instead of loving Yahweh as her treasure, as her father who loved her and made her the center of his plan for history, she got hooked on idols and pursued a path of rebellion and destruction. And before I say one further word or go any further into the courtroom scene, I just want to ask you, is that where you are today? Or someone you know and love? Maybe you claim or they claim to be a believer, but maybe you or their life reflects that you might not actually be a believer. That you're spiritually dead and need to be born again. Is your faith like Judah's faith? Perhaps you affirm the facts of the gospel to be sure, but maybe, just maybe, you have a cultural form of Christianity that passes the lie detector test of the judgment of men to be sure, but you and I both know that that it doesn't fool the all-seeing surveillance of the living God. Do you, like Judah, actually love the sin for which Christ died? And that deep down you believe that God actually gets in the way of what you think will make you happy. To possibly describe you this morning, I'm not assuming, I'm just asking. I've got to ask the question. Because if that's you, you need to know that sovereign grace and an offer of mercy is coming. It is coming in the text. But to most fully appreciate that offer, you need to hear the rest of the charges. Look at verse 3. Yahweh moves from familial language in verse 2 to animal language in verse 3. From the parental to the agricultural, look what he says. He says, an ox knows its owner. And a donkey, the feed trough of its master. Israel, my people, they don't know. They don't understand. Maybe even the dumbest animals on the planet. 
like oxen, like donkeys, they have enough intelligence to recognize their owners. They know the one who bought them. They know the one who owns them. They know who it is who can satisfy them. And they know that it would be suicide to leave them. Even they know that. Even they get that. Israel doesn't know. They don't understand that. They don't get that. Even the dumbest livestock on the farm has more loyalty to their owners than Judah does to Yahweh. But then all of a sudden in verse 4, Notice it, it, it erupts with this highly emotional, rapid-fire indictments. And notice, notice this, very important, how each name for God's people intensifies from least personal to most personal. Verse 4, literally that first word is, ah, like ah, a cry of despair, or even woe to you, woe to you, O sinning nation, a people heavy of iniquity, offspring doing evil, children acting corruptly. They have abandoned Yahweh. They despise the Holy One of Israel. Literally, they have turned away. Did you spot the progression? Nation, people, offspring, children. This isn't business. This is personal. This is family. It's not just that they violated some official protocol out there somewhere. No, it's that they were adopted sons and daughters who defied the God who saved them and were destroying themselves on the suicidal pleasures of sin. And it was not going to end well for them. Look at the end of verse 4. Every verb describing their condition increases in its tragic intensity. They have abandoned Yahweh. They despise the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away. In other words, they hated God. They despised God. He got in the way of what they thought would make them happy. What he was was an obstacle to their freedom and happiness, or at least that is the lie that they chose to believe. Because that's what sin does, you know. The blinding, get the, this is very important, the blinding power of sin makes you feel like the victim and everybody else is the bad guy trying to keep you from your happiness when in reality the exact opposite is the case. But at the end of the day, the very quality that should have defined these people, that would have made them a crown of beauty, and a light to the nations was to love Yahweh as their supreme treasure. But instead of that, they went shopping for the thrift store thrills of iniquity and sin. Look at verses 5 and 6. To, to drive home the point just how sick and sad their sin really was, Isaiah uses a, a graphic picture of a body ravaged by wounds and by disease. Look at the text. He says, why will you be struck again? Why will you increase apostasy? Notice the vital organs here. All of the head has a sickness. All of the heart has an illness. From the sole of the foot to the top of the head, there is nothing sound in them. There are only bruises and fresh blows. Wounds and fresh blows. They were not pressed. They were not bandaged. They were not softened with oil. Seen is enough to make you nauseous, and it's designed to do so. Isaiah describes a body in critical condition, mangled by disease, get this, and by war. 
From head to toe, the body is a bloody, mutilated mess of spiritual leprosy and festering, untreated wounds from a battle. And the only thing keeping them alive was the life support of the mercy of God. And you understand what this is. This is a graphic metaphor for the ravages of sin. This is what unrepentant sin looks like from God's perspective. And you understand eventually this is what unrepentant sin feels like too. I mean, sin may not mutilate your body, but it does mutilate your soul. Sin, any sin, allowed to remain unkilled and tolerated in our lives might begin like little bruises and lacerations that can be easily be hidden from public view. But mark my words, without the disinfecting power of God's word, they will make our lives a bloody mess. And you know it because you've seen it. Maybe not in your lives, but in someone else's. So the question I have for you then, do you have small bruises? Little lacerations of tolerated sin in your life? Do you have little infections of sin going untreated in your life? Because mark my words, they will not stay small or little for long. And yet, yet you have to understand the bloody condition of the, the bloody state of Judah's condition would provoke zero sympathy with the judge. Zero sympathy. So what that they're a bloody mess sitting over there in the defendant's chair? So what? Because their wounds and their diseases and their bloody mess was their own fault as a result of their own sin. Because the problem with sin, and you know this, is that you can't have your cake and eat it too. Meaning you, you can't enjoy the cake of God's blessing on your life and enjoy the forbidden desserts of the pleasures of sin. You can't have both. And you understand this. Under the conditions of God's covenant with Israel, you forfeit your right to live in the land if you, as Ezekiel so eloquently put it, played the whore with idols, which is what they did. And losing the land is exactly what Isaiah describes. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, your land is a desolation. Your cities are burned with fire. Foreigners devour your land before your eyes. And it is a desolation like the destruction of foreigners. The daughter of Zion is left like a little house in a vineyard. Like a hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If Yahweh of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. I mean, do you see what Isaiah describes here? You can totally tell. You can totally tell. Some army, some nation invaded and destroyed their land and burnt their cities to the ground like wobbly shacks crumbling in a field. Some invading army invaded and bulldozed their buildings to the ground and the destruction was so massive. Verse 9, that when it was all over, they looked exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah covered with smoking ashes, bodies strewn in the streets. The problem is, the problem is, Nobody knows what Isaiah is talking about. Scholars, I mean. What I'm saying is, there is no record of any invasion like this in the southern kingdom before 586 BC when Babylon marched in, destroyed it, leveled, to, leveled it to the ground, which was 120 years after Isaiah wrote this chapter. Do you see? So what Isaiah writes here just 
doesn't make any sense. Unless, unless, verses 7 through 9 are describing that future event. In other words, prophecy. I think it's exactly what Isaiah is doing. I believe Isaiah is playing some footage, as it were, that describes the future invasion of the Babylonian army as if it already happened, which was a prophetic way to say this was definitely going to happen, and it absolutely did happen. In 586 BC, the Babylonian legions flooded the land and like sandcastles on the beach leveled everything to the ground. And had God, by his sheer mercy, not allowed just a few survivors, a few survivors, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But you see, the thing about that last comment, the Sodom and Gomorrah comment, you could totally tell, can't you? It is both a rebuke and it's a faint whisper of hope, isn't it? Isn't it? Because they were just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserved to be annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God in his mercy would preserve a few. He would spare a tiny little remnant of Israel after Babylon. And out of that tiny little remnant, eventually he will fulfill every promise he ever made to his people. In fact, get this. In Romans 9... Paul quotes this very verse as part of his larger argument in Romans 9 through 11 that one day God was going to keep every single guarantee he ever made to his people. Because his covenant promises, you understand, both to Israel and to us, they do not have an expiration date. Understand, let me declare this. I am unwaveringly committed to a sovereign election of a future generation of Jews to salvation and the full inheritance of all the promises and covenants of God given to them in the Old Testament. Because if God doesn't fulfill every promise he made to them, we have zero guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. God is not done with Israel. The best is yet to come for Israel and to us. Unfortunately, Isaiah is still not done. You were hoping that the charges would be done being read, but they're not. There are still more to come, which brings us next to the insincere devotion of a grimy people. The insincere devotion of a grimy people, verses 10 through 15. All this week, I kept thinking, this is not the sermon they asked for, but it is the one we need. The insincere devotion of a grimy people. Because you would just think, you would just think with that much sin, that much wickedness, that much idolatry in the land, as Isaiah chapter 2 goes on to tell us, that you would think nobody was interested in going to the temple anymore, right? Worship at the temple had ceased. No one is interested in going to the temple to worship anymore because who cares? Who gives a rip, right? And yet, astonishingly, the opposite was the case. Even though the land was filled with idols, chapter 2 tells us in verses 10 through 15, we see that the temple resounded with worship and flowed with the blood of the sacrificial lambs. Isn't that interesting? They sang their songs, they prayed their prayers, they offered their sacrifices, and yet all of it was an absolute sham. 
and the Bible Belt of the Middle East, their faith was nothing more than play acting on a stage. Look at verses 10 and 11. Hear the word of Yahweh, O rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted cattle and the blood of bulls and goats and sheep. I do not take pleasure, he says. Notice verse 10, Yahweh calls the rulers Sodomites and everybody else Gomorrahites. That's deeply offensive, deeply offensive. He compares them to the, to the most immoral people in the history of the country, which just doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. Look how pious they were. Look how godless they were. Godly they were. How, how, how pious they were. They offered sacrifices, verse 11. They offered incense, verse 13. They showed up for worship and for feasts and for celebrations, verse 14. Look, look, look how devoured, look how devout they were. They prayed with passion, hands outstretched to the sky, verse 15. And yet what does Yahweh say in verse 11? What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? So what? So what that you sacrifice all the time? Verse 11, I have had enough. I don't want these anymore. Verse 11, I do not take pleasure in them, which means Yahweh hated them. He hated the very things he commanded them to do. Look at verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who required this from your hand, the trampling of my courts? In other words, who asked you to come in here and profane my temple? Who asked you to pollute my sanctuary with your hypocrisy? Who asked you to come in here and smear your duplicity over all my walls and track the mud of your pretense over all my floors? Who asked you to do that? Verse 13, he calls their incense an abomination. The strongest word in Hebrew for disgust. Verses 13 and 14, all their Sabbath days, all their celebrations, all their festive assemblies and corporate gatherings, the very things God commanded them to do, designed for worship and delighting in God. God says at the end of verse 13, look what he says, I cannot endure them. End of verse 14, my soul is weary of bearing them. What? What does it mean when a God of infinite power says, I just can't take it anymore? They treated the most sacred duties in the world like pushing buttons on a vending machine. I mean, they thought they, thought they were doing God a favor by showing up and, and going through the motions, but instead their worship only made the God of the universe sick and nauseous to his stomach. Their songs were like nails on a chalkboard. Their incense was like, it was like cigarette smoke at a bowling alley. Their, their, their gatherings of worship were no more holy than a frat party. The indictments culminate in verse 15. And when you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Although you multiply many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are filled with blood. Notice the language, not sprinkled with blood, not dried with blood. They're filled 
with blood, which means the land was filled with violence and treachery. You understand, Judah was a cruel and heartless people in those days. The same hands that just committed some act of treachery and violence were the same hands bringing offerings into the temple. Pray all you want, God says. I will not hear you. I will not listen to you. I will not answer you. I will not respond to you because your hands are filled with blood. They remind me of Macbeth in the Shakespeare play. You remember that? Macbeth slaughtered and murdered his way all the way to the throne, didn't he? But he was so overwhelmed and rigged with guilt that he keeps hallucinating. Do you remember? He keeps hallucinating that there's blood on his hands and he keeps washing his hands to wipe the blood away. And he exclaims to his wife, will all the water in the ocean wash this blood from my hands? See, the blood on his hands prevented him from enjoying the privileges of being king. And the blood on the hands of the people prevented him from enjoying the pleasures of their worship. And there was not even enough water in the ocean to cleanse their guilt. Let me ask you this this morning. How is your worship? How is your worship? What I mean is, do you weary the Lord with hypocritical worship? Are you the same person here on Sunday morning as you are throughout the rest of the week? What I'm asking is, do you pretend to love Christ on stage in front of a crowd, but in the private dressing room of your own soul, you have a love affair with the sin for which he died? Again, understand what I'm saying. I'm not asking if you struggle. I'm assuming that you do. Church is for strugglers. Worship is for strugglers. For thirsty strugglers who fight and sometimes lose and repent and change. Uh, that's good. That You should be that. I'm talking about do you have ongoing patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? I mean, Monday through Saturday, do you live in nonchalant disregard of the word of God? Because that's exactly what Judah did. It's exactly what they did. They did all the worship, externals of worship correctly, but not because they treasured God. Their, their sacrifices were many, you understand, but their tears of repentance were few. The flames always burn on the altar, but in the furnace of their souls, it was nothing but cold ashes in the soul. If that's where you are this morning, if that's where you are, sort of like Judah, then you are under obligation to contemplate, to, to consider, to search your own soul, to see if your faith is authentic. Because believe it or not, if that's where you are, there is good news in the text, which brings us to the immunity offered to a guilty people. The immunity offered to a guilty people, verses 16 through 20. And that's a good word, isn't it? Immunity. Immunity. Immunity, what does that word even mean? Well, it means that pardon is available. That guilt can be forgiven. That sin can be cleansed. That charges can be dropped. 
That there is a way for the centuries-long criminal record of sins by the people of Judah can be permanently deleted and canceled. This is a shocking thing, because how could this be? If they were just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah, and apparently they were, well, then why will they not suffer the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, that's a good question. That's a question for the sovereign grace of God and the Messiah who would die for sinners like us. Here the trial takes a sudden turn. We needed this. We needed this. Look at verses 16 and 17. It's a, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to come back and be and do all the things that God commanded them to be and do in the Torah, in the law. Look what he says. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the oppressor. Seek justice for the orphan. Plead the case for the widow. Understand, they were to do these things, not because those things would make them forgiven, but that would be the fruit and evidence that they had been forgiven. Do you see? And speaking of forgiveness, behold now, behold the shocking offer of mercy in verses 18 and 20. Here now is a plea bargain of sovereign grace. Look at verse 18. Come now. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. Let's be reasonable, shall we? It doesn't have to go down this way. It doesn't have to end this way. You don't have to crash and burn your lives with sin, he says. I didn't choose you and save you from Egypt only to destroy you. No, I have a plan for you, and it is a good plan. It is a glorious plan. It is a kingdom plan. And you can be a part of that future kingdom paradise I have planned because notice verse 18, if your sins are like scarlet, they will be white like snow. If they are red like crimson, they will be like Wool. Unbelievable. Red, you see, is the color of guilt, the color of blood, the color of crime, the color that stains and defiles and never goes away. White, you see in the text, is the color of cleansing, of forgiveness, of innocence, of purity. It is the color of grace. The people of Judah were guilty stained and defiled, damaged goods before the God of the universe because there is no hiding blood on a wedding dress. And yet there was a way. There was a way that the sewer of Judah's soul could be scrubbed and cleansed. There was a way for the blood-stained robes of the people of God to shine like snow, gleaming in the sun. There was a way to be not guilty and have all their sins forgiven and canceled. And yet, isn't it so alarming, isn't it so shocking, profoundly interesting to you, that God does not explain here in the text how they could be forgiven? Isn't that interesting? He just offers it to them and says that it can be done. How? How would all of their sins be forgiven? Just willy-nilly, God swoop it under the rug of the universe, look the other way, I didn't see anything, did you? Nope, I guess we're good. Is that what he's talking about? Is that how people get forgiven? No. Fifty-two 
chapters later, God does explain, doesn't he? Chapter 53, he reveals that in the future, a Savior would come on the scene of history and provide forgiveness of sins by the sacrifice of himself. Do you hear what I'm saying? Can you hear who I'm talking about? Who is it that I am speaking about? Who is it that Isaiah is and will speak about? Who is it? You know. You know exactly who it is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully to verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah chapter 53. Here's how we get forgiveness. Truly our sufferings he carried, and our pains he bore them. We esteemed him stricken, struck down of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh struck him with the iniquity of us all. Do you see it? Judah's crimes could be forgiven only because of the future Savior to be slain. Immunity was granted and offered only because of the sin-bearing sacrificial death of the Messiah to come 700 years in the future, because it is as the old hymn says. Do you remember? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. I just want you to know that if you are a guilty Macbeth sitting here this morning, that the fountain of cleansing grace is being offered to you. That if you have guilty stains, no matter how deep, no matter how red, no matter how bloody they may be, that the blood from Emmanuel's veins is more than adequate, sufficient to cleanse and bleach them out of existence forever. What I'm saying is if you don't truly belong to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, if you are not born again, if you are a slave to your sin and you need to be saved, the offer is on the table for you to repent just as it was offered to apostate Judah to repent. To flee from sin and find refuge in the sin-canceling grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you know? Don't you see? He stands right now full of pity, full of love, ready to save, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who calls out in repentance and faith. If you have not done so, won't you call out in repentance and faith? Because what this means is that a decision needs to be made. To refuse or to accept. And the ultimatum to Judah is given in verses 19 and 20. Look at the text. If you will be willing and you will obey, you will eat the good of the land. But I'm just going to be honest with you. If you refuse and you rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. 
Ki pi Yahweh diber. Truly the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now, what you can't see in the English, but it is brilliant in the Hebrew, get this, is that every word in verse 19 has a parallel word in verse 20 that rhymes with it exactly, but says the opposite. If willing, obey, and good in verse 19 rhymes in the Hebrew with if, refuse, rebel, and sword in verse 20. But they say the exact opposite. Isn't that incredible? The point is decisions have consequences, sometimes very significant eternal consequences or rewards. If Judah would just yield and relent and repent, they would eat the good of the land, meaning that they would live in satisfied abundance under the blessing of God, ultimately in the kingdom. But should they refuse, however, hedge their bets, refuse the offer of sovereign mercy that was only for a limited time only, they would be eaten by the sword. That's what the Hebrew says. It's the same word for eat in verses 19 and 20. You can eat the good of the land or be eaten by the sword. The choice is yours. Choose wisely. And it's clear, it's clear, isn't it, what eaten by the sword means? It has to mean invasion and destruction and murder by an invading army. And whoever's left alive, worth taking back, you are taken into captivity as slaves, which is precisely what happened in 586 B.C. when Babylon broke through the gates. And trust me when I say their swords had an insatiable appetite for blood. This would not end well for the people of God. Or would it? Or would it? Not for the rebels. Not for those who refused. Not for the recalcitrant. Of course not. But, but God still has every intention of granting every single promise he ever made to his people, which is precisely what we see in the final section of the chapter, which I'm calling the ideal future promise to a graceless people. The ideal future promise to a graceless people, verses 21 through 21 through 31, because, because an ideal future, listen carefully, that's exactly what God planned for his people. It's exactly what he planned. We're almost done here. I mean, you add up the covenants. You know the covenants. If you add up the covenants, you know what you get? You get a glorious future, a kingdom on the earth, the Messiah, messianic king, ruling a kingdom from that throne. And we see glimpses of that in verses 21 through 31. However, to feel the force of the beauty of the future, they needed to see the ugly of the present. Look at verses 21 through 23. This place was a train wreck, man. He says, how the faithful city, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She was once full of justice. Righteousness lived or lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink is diluted with water. Yikes. I mean, did you see this? Jerusalem was so wicked and apostate that God calls the city a whore. She used to be a faithful city back in the day probably under the reigns of David and Solomon, Solomon for most of his reign towards the end, train wreck. Now it was nothing more than a city-sized brothel of idolatry. 
Verse 23, look at, look at the cancer of corruption that just dominated the land. Outside of the king, who was good, not great, outside of him, no one could be trusted. Verse 23, your princes, your rulers are rebellious. The companions of thieves, he says. All of them love gifts. They pursue bribes. They do not seek justice for the orphan. The case of the widow does not come before. For them. I mean, you think our political leaders are corrupt. These guys weren't even hiding it anymore. Bribes, payoffs, kickbacks, luxuries, special treatment. These guys were like a mob ruling a city full of, full of violence and, and, and deception and immorality and cold, brutal treatment of needy people. In a word, Jerusalem was not a nice place to raise a family nor to see the glory of God. This would not do. Yahweh had been patient for decades, even centuries, but now the streams of patience had run dry and now heads were going to roll. Look at verse 24. Therefore declares the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will be relieved from my adversaries. I will gain vengeance over my enemies. He's not talking about Assyria. He ain't talking about Babylon or Persia or the Greeks or anyone else. He is talking about his own people. They were his adversaries. They were his enemies. And in the form of the Babylonian hordes, he would unleash the full fury of his wrath upon them. Judgment and exile were coming, and now nothing was going to stop it. Now, here's something you absolutely have to understand here. I need to say this here. Now, I'm going to get all eschatological on you. And yes, if the temperature has radically changed, yes, it is roughly the temperature of Antarctica in here. That is okay. That is all right. I see you out there shivering. No, Charles, sit down. It's all right, man. We'll, we'll do this. We got this. 100%. Are you with me? All right. All right. I'm going to get all apocalyptic on you here. You ready? It's very important. What you have to understand is that when you look at the Bible as a whole, being spanked with Babylon, with the stick of Babylon, was just the beginning for Israel. That was just the beginning of God's judgment. That didn't solve a thing. That just kicked the can down the road a little bit. The wrath continued on during the life of Christ with Rome in 70 AD when the Roman legions leveled Jerusalem to the ground. And right this very moment, listen carefully, the people of Abraham lie scattered throughout the earth in complete disobedience and apostasy, and they hate the very Messiah who came to save them. And you got to know this. Stick with me. Daniel 7 and Revelation 12 through 14 make it clear that more pain and punishment awaits the people of Israel in a future time of judgment under the tyranny of the Antichrist called the Great Tribulation. Why am I telling you? this because all of that I believe is contained in the vengeance described in verse 24. The other reason I'm telling you that is because that perfectly explains the glorious future we see for Israel in 25 through 27 because all of a sudden the clouds of judgment part and the beam of redeeming grace, however faint it may be, pierces the sky. 
Look what Yahweh predicts for his people, verses 25 through 27. And I will turn my hand against you. Notice what he says. And I will refine your dross as with lye. And I will remove all of your, the word is tin literally, but the idea is impurities. I will remove all of your impurities. Wait a second. Do, do, do you see what's do, do you see what's going on? You mean, all of a sudden, God is no longer talking about punishment. He's talking about purification. You mean God is not done with his people? Are you implying that there is still hope for God's apostate people? No, I am not implying. I am saying directly. Look at verse 26. He says, I will return your judges as in the first and your counselors as in the beginning, then you, prostitute, floozy, adulteress, whorish Jerusalem, you will be called a city of righteousness. You will be a faithful city. How? How would this happen? How would this Israel become that Israel? And here it is, the most important verse in the entirety of the chapter, verse 27. Zion will be redeemed with justice and its inhabitants with righteousness. Question is, what is Zion? Where is Zion? The question's one and the same. The answer is one and the same. What it is and where it is, is Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, as in the literal city. They exist in the ancient Near East. It's that. Actually, I should clarify, Jerusalem is, Zion is Jerusalem in the future when the Davidic king comes to claim his throne. That is Zion. Isaiah chapter 9 describes this very same thing, that the great king from David's line would come and rule his kingdom. Same words here, justice and righteousness from now and forevermore. And you know who the king is. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who when he returns, he will build his kingdom. He will rule from Zion. He will be worshipped by the nations. And he will make all things be the way they ought to be. That's the trial. That's the courtroom scene. And that was heavy, I know. That was weighty. I understand that. And we see that Isaiah goes on to describe future repentance Remorse, purification, punishment. It's grim and it's yet not without hope because Israel and us share the same hope which is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And speaking of Messiah, Jesus Christ, as promised, I give you three, three solutions to the deepest dilemmas that afflict our lives. Three Christological solutions that, to the deepest dilemmas that afflict our lives. This is going to go really fast. Here we go. Number one. Christ alone can cure pervasive sin. Christ alone can cure pervasive sin. You know, for most of you, I don't know your secret struggles. I don't, I don't know, most of you, what it is that you're tempted with the most. 
I don't know what for you are those nagging, hard-to-reach sins. It just never seemed to take no for an answer. And yet one thing I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that through the power of Christ, even your most stubborn sins can lie before you in obedient subjection. That the gnarly, persistent sins that afflict your life can be overcome and mastered precisely because we have a Savior who provides all the power we need to do what he commands. The question is, how does that happen? From where does the power come that we need to obey? You know. You know exactly where the power comes that we need to, for, for, that we need to obey, and the, the means, the instrument is the scriptures. Don't you see all the power with which sin, which with Christ wants to lavish us to overcome sin, comes precisely through the means of the scriptures. Number two: Christ alone can cure pretentious worship. Christ alone can cure pretentious worship. Because consider what it is that Christ demands of us. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To live as Christ and to die as gain. That all things would be lost compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I and mean, who do we think we are? We're no different or better than Israel. We have the same heart they did. We too know the struggle of a cold and frigid soul. Do we not? We know all too well the hand of indifference that grips our heart and our propensity to drift from God as our highest treasure. I mean, do we not know what this is like? And yet you need to understand Christ is in the business of filling the soul with the flames of worship. That's what he does. We have a Savior whose specialty is the deepest joy and satisfaction of our souls. And how he does that is through riveting portrayals of himself found in the pages of Holy Scripture. Go to the text every single day. Go and see Christ every single day in the text because what you will find there is a cure for the cold and frigid soul. Number three, and then we're done. Christ alone will restore paradise in the future. Christ alone will restore paradise in the future. You know, the current president of America has a plan that he calls Build Back Better. And it's a terrible plan. I'm serious. It is a terrible plan. And there's all sorts of socialist, woke, and postmodern reasons why it's a terrible plan. But one day Jesus Christ will return and he will build back better all the way until it can be no better because when he arrives, he will break the curse of sin. He will lift the spell of the evil one. He will raise the dead from the tombs. Everything that is sad in the world, he will make unsad. Everything warped and ruined by the fall will be reversed and restored to its pristine pre-fall Eden-like paradise conditions. And we, we the church and Israel together will lead a global chorus, the refrain of which will forever be, worthy is the Lamb. That's our future.
that's our happily ever after. And that changes everything about the way we view the present, doesn't it? Let's pray. Oh, Yahweh, maybe not the sermon we asked for. Maybe not exactly the sermon we were hoping to hear or that I was hoping to write. And yet, Lord, the text is clear. Here it is. Chapter 1, exactly what you wanted us to hear and understand and grapple with. We thank you that there is profound rebuke and unbelievable healing in the same chapter. Help us to look to you, Christ. Help us open our eyes. Help us lift our eyes to see you, to look to you, to cry out to you, to, to see our need for you. We are needy. We are so needy and desperate. We ask you for your help, Lord, and we know that in our seeking, in our desperate seeking of you and the admission of our helplessness and spiritual paralysis, there, there is found our deepest, highest, transcendent joy. Help us to be a people of deep, high, transcendent joy, all so that you would be exalted and praised. It's in your name we pray.